0: Welcome to Good News, Bad News, the Libertarian Christian Roundtable, where every other week we challenge the status quo and give you the libertarian Christian analysis of what's happening in your world. Welcome to another episode of Good News, Bad News, the Libertarian Christian Roundtable, where we analyze the news of the day from the Christian libertarian point of view. And today I've got with me my trusty sidekicks, (laughs) Carrie Baldwin, (laughs) Aaron Sepulveda, and also my good buddy mike mahari from godarchy.com is that right godarchy.com right dot org org. sorry godarchy.org uh but one of our good friends and uh both of lci and of the liberty movement at large uh, from the 10th amendment center as well he's a stupendous guy so we're glad to welcome him back to the show and if you don't mind everybody uh as you're watching this if you like what you see please give us a like please give us a subscribe all that jazz blah 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 helps the youtube algorithm you know you've heard it three Cajillion times before we're just saying it once more and now to on on straight on to the content that you actually came here for carrie has got something interesting she wanted to tell us about regarding staffing shortages because of omicron who knew
1: who knew what's, go- yeah. what's
0: going on with this carrie
1: <clears throat> well i think you've got the article you want to put it up
0: yes i am gonna put this one up
1: sweet so, yeah, this actually so okay, so this is from uh the conversation.com which is supposed to be more intellectual conversations yeah. happening, supposed to be. Um but this one stood out to me in particular just because they're talking about uh medical laboratories and I was a, a an ASCP certified medical lab technician way back in the day. <clears throat> yeah, that's um, fancy. Yes. And so I was reading through this and man, I just had to smack myself because I couldn't (laughs) believe what I was reading. Um, First of all, they talk about how there are dangerously low, uh, uh, you know, employee availability for medical laboratory professionals and, um, you know, huge shortage, but they say it's as a result of the pandemic. And I'm going to quibble with that for or in just a minute, but, um, you know, they talk about uh, a couple of reasons, they cite a couple of reasons as to why the pandemic is causing this. Um, First of all, they say that it's due to, quote, increased stress from the pandemic. And then later on, they cite low salaries. Um, But they also rightly point out that they've had staffing shortages in the medical lab profession for over two decades. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So when I was in, it was about 16 years ago before my son was born. Um, And I distinctly remember them talking about shortages. I was a med lab tech in the Air Force. And so I was told, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake for you to, to get a job in because there's staffing shortages. So they've had these staffing shortages yeah. for decades. Yeah. Um, so, you know, first of all, they talk about the increased stress from the pandemic, but they don't elaborate on that. Um, and, you know, we can't ignore the fact that uh, these vaccine mandates, especially now that the Supreme Court has... Uh, you know, ruled against medical professionals being able to make a decision about whether or not to take a vaccine or not. Um, but then they also cite low salaries and they compare med, med lab professionals to nurses. And they say nurses make 75000 a year and uh, medical lab scientists, uh, which are just bachelor's degree level uh, professionals, make $54,000. Um, and I had to laugh because Medical lab scientists don't do a heck of a lot or comparative to nurses. Uh, there's a lot of automation um, in that job. You're basically putting blood samples onto uh, you know, into a, a, an, automatic, uh, an, an automated system that does yeah. all the work for you. Um, <clears throat> but they're offering these sign-on bonuses of $15,000 and still nobody is signing up. Well, it also turns out there's a decline in education programs. And they even cite the University of New Mexico. Well, they they cite the state of New Mexico, but the only place that we have a program here is at the University of New Mexico. And what's interesting is 16 years ago when I went to uh, UNM to take my uh, my college credits that I had earned from the Air Force um, and try and get into their, their program, what they told me was that even though I had 90 college credit hours and and on the job experience and civilian certification that I'd have to start completely over in their program. (laughs) And, um, I told them, I said, I have more on the job experience in my little pinky than your graduates, than, than, you know, your graduates do, and you're going to make me start over. So this has been a long time coming. Um, and this, the, not the pandemic per se, but the ridiculous policies coming out of the pandemic are really making, you know, revealing the fact that these shortages exist, uh, and that they're a problem. Um, meanwhile, uh, and this is not in the article, but meanwhile, the Heartland Institute and Rasmussen are (laughs) reporting that of voters, 48% of voters want a vaccine mandate for businesses. They're willing to uh, support fining unvaccinated people. They're willing to put unvaccinated people on house arrest. Um, 50, let's see, 59% of Democrats favor house arrest for unvaccinated people. Um, So if Anybody thinks that stress from the pandemic constitutes anything other than credible threats of violence and coercion coming from not only politicians, but fellow voters, then they're living living in a fantasy land. Um, This is insane. And it's not, you know, none of these policies are going to make it any better. Um, But we do have real shortages and real problems and it all ties back into a lot of the policies that we've been talking about forever from the student loan crisis to, um, uh, you know, to, to all of these policies over mandates and things. Mm-hmm. So just food for thought when it, when it comes to talking about all these medical professionals who are experiencing work, worker shortages and stress. If we weren't putting people out of business or putting people out of work because we disagree with their politics or dis- disagree with their decision-making, this wouldn't be such a problem.
0: Well, and, there, and there's an additional like confounding effect here as well of none other than price controls. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that like, I mean, yes, it's nice and convenient that there are a lot of different ways to, to get tested and to get tested for free. Well, yeah, it's convenient assuming you can find a test. Right. So the issue right now is that like, we don't really have market pricing and testing. And as a result, uh, this makes it like, we don't know. There's literally like, there's no way to know based mm-hmm. on the, 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 the data that's even collected. If, if uh, like we're actually testing as much as we should be, we, right. maybe we should be testing more, but we don't know that because the demand from the federal government side is that everything needs to be free in this regard, right.
1: yeah. which,
0: you know, okay. I understand like there's some barriers to people that would get tested if it costs five bucks and everything or anything to that effect. But like, still guys, you gotta understand that like from at least these guys, my guys I and mean, guys at the you know upper echelons are making decisions and setting policies. Like you gotta understand you put price controls, you set the price to zero, you're gonna get a shortage. And the mm-hmm. reason there's a shortage is because you spike demand to the extent, and didn't allow for the pricing mechanism to work. Right. So I'm sorry, like, this is also your fault. Well, (laughs)
1: here's the thing in that article. One of the things that they do is they, they close out this article, not by saying, Hey, what gives, why are the, why do we have these shortages? They say, Hey, when you're standing in line for your COVID test, just remember all of these people who still (laughs) happen to have jobs and, and be concerned about that. It's like, really, this is, this is supposed to be like an intellectual article yeah. that is asking questions and challenging things. And, you know, it's just like.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to say like, yeah, there's there's a shortage in lab personnel, like, yeah. But that's also been, as I noted, happening for two decades. For right. two
1: decades, like, right. so,
0: And we know this, like, and, and you yeah. know why, I and mean, why that, why is that, Gary? Price controls on the other side of that has been happening for two decades yeah. as well. So, there's these are confounding effects from uh, uh, as well from, you know, decades upon decades of, of yeah. FDA policy. And you know, when it comes yeah. down to it, I mean, it's a, so he, that's, you know, tremendous there.
2: This reminds me of an article that I wrote for the 10th Amendment Center not too long ago. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's all on the meat industry and. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had this precipitous rise in meat prices, I think 16% in the last year. And he blames it on consolidation in the meat industry. All of a sudden we're concerned because you know, a few companies control huge swaths of meat processing. Nobody's had the self-reflection to go back and say, why is that? It's just, oh, it's the pandemic. The fact of the matter is it goes (laughs) back to 1968, yeah, when the federal government passed the wholesome meat act, and it literally overregulated the industry caused this huge consolidation it went from thousands and thousands of meat packing industries to a small handful so this again has been a problem for decades that is now being exacerbated by you know the compounding effects of government shutdowns and all of these covid policies so yeah. every time you see the government involving itself in things it ends up breaking it and then it comes along and says, oh, we're going to fix this. You know, Biden's got this big plan. He's going to fix the consolidation in the media industry that the federal government caused to begin with.
1: Well, and it's sorry, Aaron, it's, it's, it's worse than that because nobody's questioning government policy on this. It, they're taking that for granted. It's like that couldn't be the problem. It's not even occurring to them to question policy. Right. It's not even occurring to them to question regulation.
2: It's not,
3: it's um, not part of their worldview.
1: Uh, right. And like that's that's the one of the disturbing parts is that nobody's asking those questions. It doesn't even occur to them to ask those questions.
3: And, and, and I'm glad that Mike touched upon the fact that pretty much all cons- consolidation usually comes from uh, government regulation. Then you have to add antitrust uh, legislation that has been pushed, ob- obviously, by the Biden administration to break the consolidation but the question is it doesn't matter where you go if the prices is too high you're monopolies if the prices the prices are like very low you're like being unfair or whatever and if you're actually very similar to everybody else you're actually colluding so there it's always a target no matter what that it's an easy target for uh political activists and that's mm-hmm. super frustrating because you already know ahead of time what's coming like it's just like ridiculously predictable
1: yeah
0: for sure well in, in other major news items of the day uh one of the hottest I, one of the hottest things going on in washington right now happens to be the so-called voting rights bill and uh, this has been the subject of a lot of different controversy over the last few weeks and i want to get into a couple of different points about this um, you know, one of the uh, let me show, first of all, I'll share kind of this part. Um, you'll see here a lot of language going around around about how Senate Republicans are blocking the Voting Rights Bill, and uh, there's there, of course they're doing this with a filibuster, and then that's why you you're you're hearing all this a- activity around. Oh well, should should we uh, should we abolish the filibuster? Should we get? Does it, should we have? Uh, uh, perm- not permit this to take place anymore Um, but like there's some there's some interesting things to note that are you know of all the of all the little bits of language going around here to to realize that this is not some sort of you know compared to voting rights bills of the past like you know uh like women's suffrage or, or, or uh, making sure that African-Americans you know, were counted in full and different things, those were voting rights bills. This is not really a voting rights bill. I think it's more like a voting rules bill. <laughs> and I think it's, being, it's trying to uh, perhaps get uh, shrouded in, in the more sacred language of rights here. Uh, and, because, and why do I say that? Well, it's because this bill contains things like uh, stuff about automatic voter registration and mail-in voting standards uh, you know, also, oh, statehood for Washington, D.C., or at least promoting it is within it, as well as, you know, uh, rules about gerrymandering or what they call what, you know, one man's one man's redistricting is another man's re- gerrymandering, of course, we know this. And, uh, and you know, and, and, and to be fair, like some of those rules have probably been, you know, somewhat decent and when the states have done them. Uh, but when you go and do this from the national stage, it gets weird. And I think that's uh, very, very problematic uh, from the outset. Um, and I, I just think it's really interesting to kind of realize that this is what it's really all about. And even so, there's other reporting that suggests like Reason, reason.com's analysis about how this reform bill doesn't really make a difference because most of the things that are uh, advocated or, or mandated within it are either too difficult to implement with current technology or just are flat out impossible uh, given, you know, what is available today. So it's like, it's either, it either is impossible to happen within the timeframe or impossible to happen within the limits of technology itself right now. And so, you know, it just goes to show that like, when you try to top down, make this work, you're going to end up with big problems. And, and this type of centralization of power never works. Let the states handle their own systems. It is not something that needs to be handled from the, from the, the with the rules like this from the top down. And so, like, I mean, and this is, you know, perhaps under the backdrop of even the the question, how much does voting matter in the first place? But that's a whole different bill or a whole different bill of goods to sell, I suppose.
1: And the last people we want making rules about voting are the people who are elected by those rules.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like that's, uh, yeah, let's let the Fox rule a hen house here. It's like, it's kind of the point, right? And that's just not the way, that's not even, it's not even the way Like even if you're not like, you know, super keen on, uh, on on federalism per se, you know. This isn't even the way that federalism was supposed to work. Like, I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah. There are, of course, are, there are other proposals out there to try and improve things. And in fact, we actually have a listener question uh, that we, we wanted to bring Mike Meharry on just to talk about some of this alone. And this is, this is great stuff. So we do have a listener question we want to address about voting at this time. And this comes from our friend, John. We'll just gonna, we will le- le- uh, censor his last name. So John, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, John, thanks for your question here. Uh, he, he loves the podcast, and, and so we appreciate your support, man. Um, but, you know, you, you, here's the question he asks. He says, it seems obvious that we're not going to affect much change as long as we have an electoral college that works to entrench the duopoly of barely differentiable authoritarian parties. Personally, I'd like to see the replacement of the electoral college with a ranked choice voting system and that would, by its very design, tend to elect more moderate candidates and decrease polarization. Uh, and so he he uh, continues on and, and suggests that you know this could be uh, also you know uh, worked uh, worked around to to help against gerrymandering and whatnot. He says concludes with you know this would obviously you know be a big change, uh, uh, but but he's uh, but he, he says a lot of these ideas have been proposed by many smart people and wonders what our opinion is on such things. So things like ranked choice voting, electoral college, and whatnot. And so I'd, I'd like uh, I'd like Mike to kind of. Uh, throw that out there to him and give us some give us a history lesson, Mike, and some of your ideas on it.
2: Yeah, well, you know, the first thing that popped into my head when I read the question, and I think this is a very well intentioned. He's identified a lot of problems. Uh, I think anybody can look at the current system and and recognize that there are issues. So, uh, you know, kudos for anybody who's trying to come up with with solutions. Uh, but I think he kind of smuggles a little grain in that. Uh, I guess to put it this way, I would question whether uh, changing out the parts in Washington, D.C. is really going to affect any change, You know, no matter how you do it. Uh, I've said for a long time that the system in Washington, D.C., the constitutional system is so broken that it's impossible to fix it by switching out uh, a president or a Congress. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, if I have a broken down car and it's up on blocks and you know there's no <laughs> tires and the engine's half out of it, and, and I'm going to fix that by switching the driver, uh, obviously it's not going to work. And that's really what, to me, Washington, D.C. politics is all about. And, you know, the the question really addresses presidential and congressional elections, and uh, I think you have to find other ways to address the issues in Washington, D.C. I say this every time we have a presidential election, Uh, you know, I I will guarantee one thing, no matter who is elected, at the end of their term, the federal government will be deeper in debt, it will be more powerful, and it will be violating more of your rights. And I could probably add that there will be another war in there, but, you know, (laughs) so... Yeah, I'm a little skeptical of the whole DC-centric, we've got to, we've got to figure out a better way to elect a president. But to kind of get yeah. into the nuts and bolts, I think our our questioner is conflating two things. Uh, he talks about ranked choice voting and he talks about the Electoral College. And those two things aren't really mutually exclusive. Uh, in fact, we have a state in the United States now that does do ranked choice voting uh, within the context of federal elections, and that is Maine. Um, so, ranked choice voting basically would, uh, you know, instead of voting for just one candidate, you vote for your first preference and then your second preference and your third preference. And if they count all the votes and you know, the first preferences, uh, nobody gets a, a majority, then uh, the lowest candidates lopped out of there, and uh, and then they recalculate with the the second choice, those people that made that last person their first choice, now it goes to their second choice. And it keeps going until you get a a, a winner with a majority. And, you know, we could debate the merits of that. I I don't know that it's going to make a great difference. In fact, I was kind of doing a little bit of, of research on this and Australia has ranked choice of voting. And one article that I read said that uh, in, in the last federal election, I don't know if they call it federal, but in their last national election, 90% of the candidates who won would have won under a simple majority system. So whether or not it's really going to, you know, get the, 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 Duopoly out. I, I kind of doubt it because the duopoly is so well entrenched. But I think it's important to touch on the electoral college and mm-hmm. why maybe it's not such a good idea to do a do away with that. And the there was actually significant debate during the uh the framing of the constitution on how the president should be elected and they actually one of the first proposals was for a a national election with a majority vote and they did away with that idea early on for for several reasons the biggest problem that they were the the founding generation was seeing with a national election and i think that we would national election, I mean, popular vote. So, you you know, you count all the votes in the whole United States and whoever gets the most wins. The problem with that is it's going to concentrate power in your urban centers. And that was a fear in, you know, 1780s. It's even more exacerbated now. And it's really interesting to look at uh, voting maps from the last presidential election. You can pull these up online and, and you'll see that the blue areas tend to be your urban centers. So New York, Los Angeles, uh, if you go in Florida, South Florida. So if you look at a map, you have these huge swaths of red and these little dots of blue. And those huge swaths of red are typically your small towns and your rural communities. And the big urban centers are uh, the big concentrations of population. And so if you did away with the electoral college and simply went with majority vote, Politicians being smart, at least I say smart, I mean in terms of getting themselves elected and not necessarily knowing about how to do anything, but uh, they do know how to get elected. They would simply concentrate on those urban areas because that's where the votes are and people in rural communities would be completely locked out. Nobody would go to Wyoming to campaign. I don't know that they go to Wyoming now, but at least Wyoming has some relevance in the system because it has electoral votes. Uh, but as far as a popular vote, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. So um, I think that you would see a huge shift even more so towards uh, towards the rule or away from the rule representation, towards the urban representation. And uh, you know that's problematic uh, if you're actually talking about representation. And that kind of takes me to the other part of his question he was talking about, uh, the idea of for congressional races, instead of having districts in each state, you basically would just take the most popular, you know, however many people. So let's say, take Kentucky. Kentucky has six representatives. Uh, instead of having six districts, you would have the six most popular people in the state. Well, there again, you are diluting representation. Uh, those districts, you know, represent certain regions. And in a lot of states, regions can vary greatly. Uh, You know, here in Florida, South Florida is very different from the Panhandle. Uh, And in a system like that, you would have virtually all of the representation being from the urban centers, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Tampa. And you would get no representation for here, uh, you know, those of us in Northeast Florida or in uh, rural areas of Central Florida or the Panhandle. So, you know, if we're looking at representation, then you really need those districts because they are supposed to represent the uh, the, the the people in a geographical area that have their specific needs and 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 uh, uh, political culture, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not real keen on this whole idea of popular vote. Gerrymandering could be fixed easy instead of, you know, drawing districts with squiggly lines, draw boxes. You know, I think there's easier ways to solve those problems than, than completely doing away with uh, districting or the electrical, electrical, I've said that three times now, <laughs> electoral college and going with a popular vote. Um, it, it, it would definitely change the dynamics, but I don't think it would necessarily change the dynamics for the better.
1: Oh, Norm, you're muted. <clears throat>
3: yep. Yeah. Hey, can I make a comment? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So yes. Yeah, because um, what I was gathering from here, and um, I kind of saw it long time ago. What is that? Nobody, I think, literally nobody, ever th- thinks of the idea that let's say pre nineteen nineties, the United States was not oddly enough, ideological, but it was regional. And that's how the system mechanically, it, it is mechanically designed to be a regional system. The federal system is a regional system. But in the 90s, as far as I understand, uh, the, the, there was a big switch where before regional Democrats and Republicans would work together for whatever the region needed everywhere in the United States. And then in the 90s, you have, no, Republicans work only with Republicans and Democrats work only with Democrats. And the 90s was the really, the uh, the moment where that switch and nobody has noticed it. So everybody just assumes that we need to fix it towards a more ideological representation than to a regional representation. That's behind everyone's mind and nobody discusses this this switch uh, that happened in the 90s. That's why this this is going to continue to come and over and over because there's always assumed that we need to have Ideological representation, re- rather than regional representation.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember the 80s, and it was pretty—it uh, was pretty yeah. ideological then too. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure I buy that premise. I mean, there definitely has been a shift. I think there, I think I think politics is enough? definitely more polarized. Um, but I still think that there there uh, that it's always been this kind of ideological um, divide. I think the ideology has changed a bit. Um, you know. I think uh, it's interesting. I, th- I think in the last 10 or 15 years, you've seen, it, seen a shift from kind of the blue collar uh, rule shifting from Democrat to Republican. Um, but I still think those those regional differences are pretty profound. And I think if you look at a map, you can see that. Uh,
1: well, and I think, <clears throat> I think as far as ideology is concerned, there was much more common ground that could be found between the two sides between Democrat and Republican, it's so, so polarized now, like, you know, there's zero common ground, at least from the voters perspective, right?
2: There's a lot of common ground, really, when it comes to a war, or (laughs) spying on you, or taking your money or regulating things, they tend to be able to get together to do those things. Uh, Yeah, you know, it's in in a lot of ways, if you if you start getting into the political system, um, I've, I've had the unfortunate experience of, of kind of seeing behind the scenes more more so in state government but I think the federal government's uh, much the same um, they fight in public and and work behind the scenes to do what they want to do in private uh, a lot of the a lot of the hot rhetoric is hot rhetoric for the for the voters and in uh, behind the scenes they're getting done what they want to get done and then every every once in a while you get a flying one like joe mansion <laughs> yeah
0: the the way you can kind of think about it is in terms of the, those venn diagrams of the where the intersections of of the the two major parties kind of can collide together that area of of uh of intersection has gotten smaller and smaller and that represents the polarizability of it all yeah and you could mm. think in some sense that and, and this is a very crude way of kind of mathematically trying to put it, but that the greater the proportion of, of, uh, of, of uh, the main area to that small intersectional area, then the more polarized it gets. And you can even see that as it pertains to the way we think about this in terms of kind of like, well, the way that libertarians kind of intersect with, all, with the other two.
3: Mm-hmm. And that there
0: is kind of an intersection of all three at very small points at times. Um, but that just demonstrates to an extent how polarized the rest of it is. Right. So, you know, if anything, you know, there's there is something to be said for realizing that 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 uh, that we're trying to kind of make their areas smaller mm-hmm. <laughs> and absorb and absorb them into the correct ideas and make that that little <laughs> right. intersectional area. bigger. Well, and, anyway, know want to.
2: One of my political. I, so I'm not a voter. I don't know why I'm talking about voting, <laughs> but because,
3: uh, you know, you you don't have to do it to know it.
0: You yeah, I know,
2: I know. I know the history. But
0: but, but don't my, you know that by not voting, you're voting for the wrong guy? Yes, I, I'm very well aware of that. <laughs> but,
2: you know, my political philosophy in terms of activism, and this is what we do at the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, we look at, OK, what are the power dynamics in uh whatever state uh, and because our our focus tends to be state oriented but you can look at this at the local level as well and then you look at that and you say okay what can we get done given the people that are there Mm -hmm. to create more space or push for liberty so you know in california we're doing very different work with very different coalitions than we're doing in alabama and uh so you know, that's why I don't really worry. I I used to worry a lot about, you know, who who, who are we going to elect? And I mean, quite frankly, 80 to 90 percent of them are sociopaths. And, yeah uh, you know, most of them aren't very useful in terms of the overall philosophy of liberty. But we can find Democrats who are willing to push back against a surveillance state. Uh, we can find Republicans mm-hmm. who are willing to push back against, uh, you know, gun control. Uh, sometimes we can find a uh, the intersection of the Venn diagram on an issue like asset yeah. forfeiture. So mm-hmm. you know, instead of obsessing over who we're gonna get elected and trying to get the next great candidate who's gonna bring us liberty, yeah. um, maybe focus a little bit on, okay, what are the dynamics where I am and how can we leverage that? How can we leverage those people to move them towards liberty? Uh, or move the system a little bit more towards liberty and then the beauty of that is when you get involved in these coalitions sometimes you can actually have the opportunity to begin talking about principles with folks and a great example of that is um, when I was living in Kentucky I was doing some local activism on surveillance and uh, ended up getting sued and uh, had the ACLU representing me in in this lawsuit got to know some folks at the ACLU and and you know they're, they're good on some things and bad on some things, but I remember one day I was having lunch with the policy director, and we were talking about the case, and, and as lunches tend to go, the conversation meandered, and we started talking more about uh, political philosophy, and at the end of lunch, she looked at me and she goes, maybe I'm an anarchist.
1: <laughs> because, awesome. because
2: we were finding those those common grounds, so that's what I love about single issue coalitions. Yeah. Uh, instead of trying to, uh, you know, get so obsessed about electoral politics, and it's a hard shift for people to make because we're conditioned that we we've got to we've got to find the guy. And yeah. then vote for the guy. And then the guy's going to do what we want him to do. And then usually the guy turns out to be a bum. And then we have to repeat the process over. Yeah.
0: again. <laughs> yeah, you don't get you don't get your Ron Paul's or David Simpsons or whatever right. very often.
2: Yeah, there's a, yeah. few, there's a be, few out there.
0: Be thankful when they occur, but yeah. do not put your hope in princes, as we you know, said.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: well, that seems like a, a good place to kind of uh, leave off for now. And we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of good news and bad news. Uh, We will see you in another couple of weeks. But if you are listening to us on one of our uh, one of our podcast uh, uh, venues, we would appreciate if you again will leave kind of a a good review there for us. We'd appreciate it. Let us know if you're if you got some feedback. And of course, you can always reach out to us at contact at libertarianchristians.com and send us your questions. So thanks, John, for your question. We appreciate uh, we appreciate your support. And uh, we look forward to hearing from more of you guys. Uh, So with that, bye for now.